invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus 24. Exodus 24. We're going to embark upon a tour of God's house. Well, his tent. The tabernacle, as it's known. Uh, and it is, it is really simply that term, tent. Uh, we have a fancy term, tabernacle. And God, God indeed dwelt in that tent to a certain measure. Now, he can't be contained. God is spirit and he cannot fully dwell within something man-made. Um, but we're going to embark upon this tent. Who, who has tented in their life? Okay. Most, most of us have tented. Who graduated beyond the tent to a, some kind of camper? A few, not as many, but a few. How many still tent? Even few, two, three, all right, four. You got rugged people here. That's, fan that's fantastic. We are, I was talking with one of the guys after our panel discussion uh, this morning and it reminded me of our first anniversary. Uh, our first anniversary, year number one, we went up to Porcupine Mountains. And we were married in Minnesota uh, in 1991 in um, June 29th. It was hot, muggy, sticky, humid. So when we're thinking Michigan, June 29th, we're thinking still hot, sticky. I was in seminary. I wasn't thinking much of anything except seminary. I should have been more thoughtful. In fact, I even th forgot about the time change between here and Porcupine Mountain. But it was worked to our advantage, praise the Lord. It was freezing cold. Was, we're on Lake Superior, right? It's freezing cold. Um, that's camping. <laughs> it was a good honeymoon. It, it wasn't a honeymoon. Could have been. Um, we had s'mores, like, for every meal. <laughs> I'm way off text here. Um, let's, let's begin the passage. We're not going to read the whole unit. We'll, we'll touch elements along the way. But Exodus 24, uh, beginning at verse 12. Now, I know in, in your Bibles it looks like we're, we're stepping right in the middle of of a narrative, and to some degree we are, but there is a, a turning uh, of events here in verse 12. The leadership, Moses and the elders, have been eating with the Lord on the holy mountain. They've been communing with him in fellowship. But now we move to a different scene. Apparently, at some point, they'd come back down, and the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God and he said to the elders, wait for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. And then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain 
And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture so that you shall make it. Israel is being formed into a nation by God. They've come out of, of Egypt having not been a nation previous. They were a people group. They were a nomadic tribes people, but not a nation. They were known as the Hebrews, the Hapirus. Now they're becoming Israelites, named after their forefather, uh, Israel, who had been Jacob. They're being formed into this nation, and part of this is constitution. The, the law that we've read so far in Exodus 20 and, and explained a little bit more into 24, uh, unpacking those Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, this becomes their, their foundational law code as a nation. But who, who's the leader? And thus far, we would, we, we, if we were good and take a poll, we'd say who? Starts with an M. Moses, right? Looks like he's, looks like he's the leader. I'm glad I didn't have to say ends with S. You know, it, it, it looks like it's Moses, but the reality is it's the Lord. The Lord is the one who's been leading them. The Lord is the one been leading Moses and instructing Moses how to guide the people. The Lord has been the pillar of fire and the cloud, protecting them and shrouding them and leading them through the wilderness up, up to this mount. God is their king. The Lord is their ruler, their prince, their Lord. But where does he abide? Everyone else has their tents scattered all about the wilderness side. But where will, where will be a habitation for the Lord? Now, no one's been getting ahead of God, which is good. Um, but now the Lord intervenes and says, Moses, you need to build a sanctuary. You need to build a tent for me because I want to be with my people. They're all in tents. I want to be in a tent also. In fact, I want to be so with them, you know, I want my tent to be right in the middle of it all with the 12 tribes encamped around. I want to be as near to them and I want to identify with them in their condition and in their estate. Similar, similar to that verse we sang earlier, right? Um, um, 
I can't remember how the words go. This is why I'm not the music person. <laughs> Something about he's our friend and he's condescended. To us he'll, he is our friend, to us he'll condescend. Does that sound close? He is our guide and friend. I can't get the tune either. Our guide and friend, to us he'll condescend. Good reason I'm not the music person. But we sang of that. God condescends to us. Now we tend to think of condescending as, a, you know, a, don't talk to me like a child type of thing. But no, to condescend is to come down and to be with. And God does this with his people there's uh, three movements to this whole section. It really goes from chapter 24 all the way to chapter 40. Don't worry, we're only going to go through 27. But there's three basic movements. And here I'm going to call 24 into 25 the conscription. This is where God is calling upon the people to bring an offering and he's conscripting them into his service. He's, he's saying, build me a house, build me a tent. But it's going to move then into chapters 25 to 31 with instructions about how in there to build this house of the Lord and, and the furniture that's to be in it. There's to be a, a, a couch and a fireplace. There's, it's, just, it's like it's in many ways set up like anyone else's tent. There's a lamp so you can see in the dark. And then uh, verses chapters 35 to 40 are the actual construction phase, phase of the tabernacle. What's interesting, if we, if we read through the chapters, and I encourage you to do it um, as a homework, read through chapters 25 to 31, and then read 35 to 40, and they're, they're in different orders. Chapter 35 begins on the inside of the tent and works its way outward. Chapter 35 begins on the outside and works its way inward, which makes a lot of sense for construction, doesn't it? You build the outside perimeters, you build the, the walls, and you work inside. But when the instructions come, we begin in the most central place. We begin, in reality, the most important place, the most intimate place. <laughs> And we'll see this as we move forward. But let's, let's look at these opening verses, which we've read now, this paragraph or so. Moses goes back up onto the mountain. And he's, he's there for six days of preparation. He's there waiting on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Moses is up there six days. Notice how the, the text says he goes into the mountain. Later it says he went on the mountain, but then you get, you get the picture as to why, it, from our perspective down below, it looked like he went into the mountain because it's covered with fire and cloud. And, and Moses ascends into uh, that, and it looks like he goes up into the mountain, into the presence of God. There is a principle here, and we are slow to get it because we're too fast we don't rush into the presence of God. And a little reminder, even for us, when we gather here, it's, we're certainly not on Mount Sinai, but when we come, we can't just assume or presume that because we found our place to sit that we're actually ready 
to come into the presence of God and offer him worship. Allow some moments for God to work on you and in you at least six seconds, six minutes. Hopefully, he's been working on you six days, and now we come on this, the Lord's day, ready to come. Are you ready on the end of that sixth day of the week? Or are you all worn out from the weekend before this first day of the week? Well, Mo Moses meets with the Lord. The Lord says, build me, build me a tent. Now, you're going to have to take an offering in order to do this. Verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel, and they, they, they might take for me a contribution. Everyone whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution. And, they, and it goes from gold all the way down to onyx stones. That's interesting. Where else have we seen a list of things that go from gold to onyx stones? It was in the creation account. In the Garden of Eden, there's a list of the, the precious elements that are in the garden. It begins with the gold and ends with the onyx stones. I wonder if that might have some meaning here. But he says, bring an offering. Bring an offering. And he says, I want it to be from the heart. Uh, that becomes quite the phrase these days, doesn't it? Well, we'd like you to share. Share from the heart. I think that means sincere, genuine, but not too genuine. Because we're from West Michigan. And Minnesota. From the heart. Worship, worship begins with the right heart motivation. There are external things, yeah, but it really begins with the right heart motivation and worship is when we want to give more than we want to get when we gather on the Lord's day in this kind of service we're here to give God the glory we'll do it in testimony we'll do it in praise we'll do it in prayers and most of our prayers are about waiting for him We'll do it with preaching. But it's about an offering unto the Lord. But it is, it is, you know, there's financial stuff here. Now, catch this. What kind of stuff are they giving? Gold down to onyx stones. Like, where did the slaves of Egypt get that? Remember how the Lord allowed them to plunder the Egyptians when they left? It wasn't theirs in the first place. Can, so how are you going to feel? You know, are you going to feel as free to give of that gold? It wasn't yours. It's not yours. God gave it to you in the first place. It was some Egyptians before that that God gave to him or her. And you've had it a, a few weeks. And now, now the Lord says... Let's build me a tent. Is your heart open and willing to let it go? There's a different meaning to the song. 
This is a New Testament way uh, of generosity as well. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 5 to 7. Paul writes to the church, he says, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised, the gift of, of benevolence in this case. It's a benevolent offering for the, the saints in Jerusalem who are having a hard time and, and unable to uh, get enough food. And so the churches in the area are going together to help them and um, the saints help the saints. So he says, I, I've asked the brothers to go in advance for the gift that you've promised that it might be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. There's a word. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Wow. We're not bound by a certain percentage in this era of grace in the new covenant. In fact, in reality, even the old covenant wasn't bound by one ten percent. They actually had three tithes. And the total would, on an average yearly amount, kind of be somewhere around 23-24%. That's another lesson, another talk, if we were in Malachi, for example. But Paul says don't give by exaction, not by compulsion. Give freely from the heart. This is for God's building. Now we're back in Exodus. We have a building too, but this building is not the, you know, we don't have the Shekinah uh, in here at the moment pressing us all down to the floor. Now, we now have become the habitation of God. We, that is his body, the bride, the building of God is the people of God. When we assemble as the people of God, it's different than when we're out there on our own. We assemble. Well, God would dwell. Let's get back to the text. God would dwell with his people, and this is a royal dwelling, furnished with furniture and a throne and a lot of royal blue. Did you notice? The pattern is divinely given. Verse 9, exactly I'm sorry, verse 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. Exactly according to the pattern. Exactly according to the pattern. Don't you? Yeah, I know. You wish that God would always give us that exact of a blueprint for building a life. But it's his goodness and his grace that he hasn't. We have the Spirit that guides us and we have His Word that the Spirit guides us in. The exact pattern. But this is about worship. We go to Hebrews 8 and 9 and when we went through that study we recognized that all these things are patterns, they're shadows of what's going on in heaven. The tent that God has for Moses to build for those Old Testament people is a pattern after the kind of worship that happens in the heavenly host. 
We've been going through a study in Revelation. We kind of got slowed down a bit here in the summer. Cornhole takes the precedent, and which is good. But we're, we're enamored with the heavenly worship and the arrangement of the living creatures and the 24 elders and the four and the hosts of angels and the hosts of humans gathered around the throne. And the tabernacle is patterned after the reality in heaven. We don't worship the God of our imagination. We worship a God of biblical revelation. Now, I didn't make that up on my own. But it's good, isn't it? Well, here's a list of the furnishings. We'll, we'll move into the instruction part, and we'll move through this more in, in a survey kind of form. You have the ark, the table, the lampstand, the curtains, the altar, the courtyard. Six elements that are included here in this list. And we're going to walk through these uh, quickly, beginning with the most important. The one in the center of the whole house, the ark. Verses 10 to 22 of chapter 25. The ark was about three feet long, about two feet wide, and about two feet deep, and had a crown of gold upon it. The ark was not just a chest, not just a box. And Israel isn't the only people group to have an ark, an ark of a covenant. But Israel's ark of the covenant was distinct in that it didn't look like there was anybody sitting on it. It looks like it's an empty throne. So you, you, you might hear the taunts from the enemies of God, the enemies of God's people. In some of the Psalms, for example, Ah, oh, where is your God now? You, that question sound familiar in some of the Psalms? Why would they say that? Well, because there they are marching into battle, carrying the Ark of the Covenant before them, and they lost their God. The idol is missing on top of the Ark. You lost your God! All the other nations had their idol there. You could see it. But remember, we were, we're told that, that God is spirit. has no body as we do. And we're not to imagine him, image him in, in a way in which he has not revealed to us. And on this ark, the Lord is there, but not seen. The lid is of pure gold, and uh, it's called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And once a year, the high priest would enter in and, and put blood on the mercy seat and atone for the, the sins of the nation. The two golden cherubim are there, and, and that reminds us of other psalms that talk about the Lord inhabits and sits upon the cherubim. This is his throne. In fact, Psalm 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. 
Now, cherubim are rather fearsome-looking creatures. You can go to the, the museum in Chicago and see some very good uh, representations of cherubs. Uh, I have a seraph, actually, a picture of a seraph relief in my study somewhere. They're fearsome-looking, almost dragon-like-looking. They're not chunky little babies flying around. <laughs> At this, at this place, between the points of the cherubim, God would speak to Moses in the tent of meeting. Well, we move from, from the throne of God to the table. Chapter 25, verses 23 to 30. There's a, a table also made of gold, also with a crowned uh, emblem upon it. But we're not to be so much concerned with the table as we are what's on the table. And there are 12 loaves of bread. And each week, the old loaves are removed and new loaves are placed. And the old loaves are removed and taken to a ceremonial spot where the priests would, would ceremonially eat of that bread. There are 12 of them, one representing each of the tribes of Israel. They are always before the Lord, or the Lord is always among them. The loaf represents the people and the 12 tribes. And God is among them, and they are in his presence. The table, the table expresses fellowship, communion. Worship is about eating with God. It's about getting to the place where you are friends with one another and you can enjoy company together at the same table. The same table. Not a separate table over here for, for high and mighty Joseph, the second in command of all of Egypt under Pharaoh in Genesis 50. And his brothers singing, eating separate over here. None of that kind of thing. God at the same table and inviting you to join him at his table. Amazing. Twelve loaves. Remember the miracle of Jesus in feeding the 5,000, I think it was? And he had 12 baskets left over. Hmm. Jesus is better. Well, then there's a lampstand. Of course, every house has to have lights. There's a lampstand, verses 31 to 40 in chapter 25. This lampstand weighs about 75 pounds. It's not going to knock over easy. About 75 pounds tells us in verse 39 uh, a talent of pure gold. And, and this lampstand is shaped like a tree. It has branches and, and it has flower-like buds and blossoms and almonds on each of the main stem and branch. It, it, it's maybe a picture of the three stages of life, right? The, the bud is the potential for life and the flower, the blossom is the beauty of life and then the almond itself is the fruit of life, the maturity of life. 
And, and just as we, as we considered that gold all the way to onyx stones are elements that are listed in the creation account, so we remember that there was the tree of life in the midst of the garden. And here is a symbol of the tree of life from Genesis 3.22. Always present there within the tabernacle. God indeed is the source of light and life. And even as there was a tree in the center of the first garden, there will be a tree in the midst of the new garden in the heavenly Jerusalem descending upon earth, the new creation, the tree of life we will get to again. Do you remember how Adam and Eve were in the garden and, and, and they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 3? And having done so, God disciplines them and part of that discipline is what? Banished them from the garden and sent them what direction? sent them out the east side that they might not come back in. A cherub with flaming sword was there at the gates. The desire of God's people has always been to get back in the garden. But how? How can we pass the flaming cherub? How can we enter back into the presence of God? How can we partake of the tree of life? Hmm. Well, then the curtains are described in chapter 26. And this is a lengthier section. And there's different layers of the curtains. You can see on this graphic a bit of the, the coloration and the layers that would come. Verses 1 to 14 talk about the inner curtains, and then verses 15 to 30 talk about the frames that hold it all together on which they're, they're draped. And then verses 30 to 35 talk about the veil separating two rooms. And then 36 and 37 talk about the screen. That would be basically the main entry gate. They're bluish fabrics with gold fittings, and, and it's indicative of royalty, right? Royal blue and gold. It's a rectangular structure and it's divided into two rooms. There's a smaller room and a larger room and in the smaller room you have the Ark of the Covenant, that throne. It's the throne room. It's called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. And then the outer room is called the Holy Place. Holy and Most Holy, right? The smaller room there has the Ark. The larger room has the gold table and the lampstand. And then there's a separation between that holy place with, with a veil that separates the most holy place and God would meet with them once a year in that place and only with the high priest. You can only approach the throne of God when the blood atonement has been made and sprinkled at the foot of his throne. Do you remember how Moses was disobedient to the Lord in his journey going back to Egypt. He brought his wife and son with him and the angel of the Lord appears and says, I'm going to take Moses' life. And Moses' wife inter intercedes on his behalf and circumcises their son and she puts the foreskin at Moses' feet and saves Moses' life. The, the 
redeemer by blood. Well, you get a similar kind of thing here. The, the blood is at the throne, foot of the throne of God. And it allows the worshiper to enter in. You can only approach him through blood sacrifice. But until then, his holiness must be veiled. And, and you might think that it's to keep you out. In part, it is. But it's to protect you from the holiness of God. It's God's grace that he brings the veil. It's God's grace that he brings the separation. It's God's grace that he sent Adam and Eve out of the garden so that there would be an opportunity to come back in. It's God's grace that he put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman because if there was no enmity, we'd be friends. And you don't really want to be friends with the serpent. And God in his grace has provided for this. Well, there's the curtains. The altar is in the outside uh, of that place. Verses 1 to 8 of chapter 27. It's about seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet wide and four and a half feet tall. It's made of bronze. We're getting lesser in value of material, right? In the holy places, it's gold. And now we're moving out to the courtyard area and it's bronze. It, when you pass through the main entrance, through the screen into the courtyard area, it, it, the, the bronze altar is right there center, right? And it's, it's seven plus feet wide. I mean, that is what you see. And you're reminded right away that there has to be a sacrifice before you can go any further. There's an awareness of your sin, your unworthiness before an awesome and holy God. Well, verse 9 to 19 go on to describe the courtyard. Uh, it'd be about 10,000 square feet. We're, we're thinking something like 160 feet by 80 feet. So it's, I mean, rough estimate. So it could be a bit over 10,000 or so. But you get the idea. There's, there's 20 pillars on each long side of the tent. And, 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 and on each of the short sides, there's 10 more pillars. It's very uniform. So you've got 60 pillars around the whole courtyard. And they're joined together with silver connecting rods. And the curtain, that curtain is white. Like it would shine brilliant off the wilderness floor. Almost glinting in the sun. But there's only one entrance. The eastern gate. The tabernacle faces east. The same direction at which Adam and Eve left the garden. And the only way to come back in, one way. The tabernacle is a recreation of the garden. By the time we get to Solomon's temple, they, they're engraving it with all kinds of plants as well as cherubim. The curtains are lined with 
cherubim. And the whole arrangement is, well, it's also like being at the mountain. At the mountain, now it's only Moses that goes up into that very presence of God. And in the tabernacle, it will be only the one high priest. On the mountain, you've got Joshua and you've got the other elders part way up. And so in the, the, the holy place, the other priests are able to serve and minister. And then the rest of us, we're down at the base of the mountain. And so you have the outer court of the tabernacle. It's all representative of the experience of God's people with God. But inside the courtyard, the people of God are separated from the rest of the world. Protected by him. Well, we've walked through this uh, quickly. We've given some, some hints and allusions to what, it, what it's all about. We have to get to Jesus. We're new covenant people. We don't have a tabernacle. Oh, we've named buildings that once in a while. No, we don't have a tabernacle. We don't have a temple other than the fact that we are. It, this, we call it sanctuary, but this room is no more holy than the washroom down the hall. We are the indwelling place of God. But here's the image. The tabernacle is the dwelling of God among his people. It's the throne room of the king of kings. It's the chamber room of the covenant husband. It's the gathering of angels and humans together in worship of the Lord. And it's the promise and hope of a renewed garden after paradise was lost. The architecture and the furnishings of the tabernacle illustrate spiritual truths. They're copies of the reality in heaven. Hebrews 8.5 they illustrate how you worship God and how you can come into the presence of a holy God. Well, Hebrews 8, 5, and 6, they serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. Moses was about to erect the tent. He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. How do you approach God? Jesus told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. We can get, we can get over-detailed and over-imaginative with the elements of the tabernacle. Kind of like you could do with any other parable, right? The Good Samaritan. Well, every little element has to mean something. The oil that he poured on must mean the Holy Spirit, blah, 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 blah. That's terrible. That's awful. That's bad Bible study methods. Don't do that. 
And you, you'll read any number of Jewish rabbis do the same kind of thing with the tabernacle looking forward to Messiah. And much of it's contrived. Not all of it, but much of it. So I just caution you. Jesus says, it's about me. The whole big picture is about Jesus. Now, we can look at the elements and see the person and the work of Jesus. The covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. Jesus embodies the law and the life of God. And he sits upon his Father's throne. In fact, the, the propitiation by his blood is the same word that's used for the atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Old Testament, it's almost exclusively always a reference to that. Romans 3.25 God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus is the bread. He's prepared a table for us in the new covenant and he has called us friends. John 15.15 15. But we have not 12 baskets and we have not 12 loaves, friends. We have one. We have one. The work of Jesus is greater. Unifying. Unifying us into one. He is the light. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the context of John 8 is Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles and they're celebrating the feast, uh, uh, the lighting of the candelabra within the temple. He is the veil. Indeed, Ephesians 2 talks about the division between Jew and Gentile, division between you and I. And that Jesus has broken down that wall of separation and partition. But um, Matthew 27, 51. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split when Jesus died on the cross. The veil between the holy place and the most holy place was rent open so that we can approach the throne of grace boldly. The throne, you get all the way to the throne, friend. All the way to the throne of grace and find mercy. Because as Hebrews puts it, it is through Jesus, through the curtain, that is through his flesh, that you can enter the presence of a holy God. He is the sacrifice. He's the altar of sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10:12. Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins and sat down at the right hand of God. Christ is, in fact, the whole tabernacle. John 1:14. We read this at Advent, at Christmas times. The Word became flesh, and the flesh dwelt among us. The word dwelt is the word tabernacle. Tent. Jesus tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's him. That's him. And we long for his second coming. In Revelation 21, it will be fulfilled. And it says, now the dwelling place of God 
is with his people for all eternity. And he brings us back into the garden, back into the holy place of his presence. The tabernacle is, is shown to us in the furniture and the process of bringing, of bringing worshipers into the full presence of God and to enjoy fellowship with him, to dine with him. So the, the glory of Christ's work to invite you in to his house and invite you all the way to his father's throne is something that should compel you to accept his invitation. It should drive you to him for an unhurried and, a, and an unhindered communion with the Father. Come home. Some of us are wanderers by nature. Give us the tent. In fact, the lighter, the smaller it can fit in the backpack, the better. Because we want to see the world and the things that God has made. We'll come home. Wherever you go to the nations, making those disciples go. But remember, you have a home with God. You're not like any other kind of wanderer. You have a home. And some of us are nesters, right? Give me that sofa. Give me the do-it-yourself project. Build that nest. Comfort that nest. Pack that nest. Fill that nest. Pad that nest. Good. But remember that as Christ has opened up the way for you to enter into his Father's home, open your home and make a way to share that hospitality with the friends, the neighbors, the acquaintances and show them, show them something of the glory of God working in your life from one degree of glory unto another. But it's worship. And we're a worshiping people. We come, yes, we want to be ministered to. Yes, we want to receive from the Lord the fruits of His Spirit, the fullness of His Spirit, the holiness of his spirit. But we come to worship. We're not here to be entertained. We're not here to get as much as we are to give unto the Lord. This is what makes Grace Bible unique, distinct. Is it always easy? No. Do you get up every Sunday morning? Here we go. No. Sometimes it's like, here we go. But we come. We're driven and we're compelled by the glories and the beauties of Christ drawing us in the dwelling place of God, his people. 
So, Lord, take this, this uh, illustration, this picture uh, of the realities in heaven and give us a taste and a longing for the coming of Christ when it will be totally manifest. It will be all consummated in a great intimate relationship with him. And he brings us into his house. We thank you for these truths. And Lord, among us there may be some that, that have never accepted the invitation to enter in to fellowship with you, have never partaken of Christ, never identified with his sacrifice, the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so we might do that now and receive Jesus. Perhaps we, we have, but we haven't been contented with our place and we wander. Lord, give us a sense of, of contentment, a sense of satisfaction in all that Christ is for us. That wherever we go, we're at home with you. And open our hearts to extend and, and reveal and show to others this marvelous grace, the throne of grace, that they might find mercy. And Lord, we consider our church family. If indeed we are the body, then